the Trex Brixton Glorious Live Tour 2023 is concluding oh my. in Columbus, Ohio, December 1st through the 3rd. And what great guests will be joining us at GalaxyCon? The well, circle closes. The f- what? The circle closes. The circle closes. Okay. We started the, uh, at Columbus last year. Okay, we now Columbus. we're back. And uh, <laughs> the Flash, Grant Gustin will be there. Daredevil Charlie Cox, Hellboy himself, Ron Perlman, Jonathan Frakes' buddy, Mike Tyson, the great <laughs> Bill Shatner. Lost. Will Shatner fight Tyson? That's the question everybody's asking. Oh, that's the question. And who I'd would like win? to see that. That would be the ultimate fight club. Wow. Forget that the cabaret. That's what they should do at midnight. They should do uh, Tyson versus Shatner. Wow. That'd be like Muhammad Ali versus Superman, wouldn't it? The flying yeah. kick alone. <laughs> <laughs> That's an illegal move. Communities, Joel McHale will be there. Breaking Bad, Gene Carlo Esposito. Sean Gunn joining, uh, joining the festivities. Will he Data be eating a himself. stick of butter? Maybe he will. That's a deep cut. That's a deep cut. That's a specials <laughs> reference. My God, even I didn't get that at first. Oh, my. Um, Terry Farrell and the Not Visitor will be there. Terry, Terry Metalis, Todd Stashwick, so many friends of the podcast will people be joining. People named Terry, people named Todd. <laughs> Anthony Michael Hall, Jeff Combs. You just heard him on the podcast recently. And you'll He'll hear be him there again. as That's well. And, uh, and so many other great guests. Um, so you don't want to miss this uh, fantastic GalaxyCon Columbus. Fantastic. Coming to it's Ohio totally December 1st through 3rd. Discover the magic of GalaxyCon in Columbus, Ohio, this December, and we'll see you there. Hey, this is Mark Altman of Inglorious Trex Prince in the 430 movie. And if you're a fan of our podcast, you don't want to miss Deck 78, available now by subscribing at TrexPrinceplus.com. This is a bonus podcast full of great discussions about popular culture, film, and television. By your command, here's a sneak peek. So, Dwayne, tell me about how you first discovered Buckaroo Banzai and sort of what sort of was your impetus for falling in love with uh, a movie that's now a genuine cult classic, which basically means it made no money, but it's awesome. And, and did you reach it by way of the eighth dimension? <laughs> um, almost. I, I found some of my collectibles uh, via a long journey, but, um, you know, I'd heard some of the promotion and excitement about it when the, the movie was uh, getting ba- ready to be released. Um, I live in Evansville, Indiana, which is a little obscure. So it didn't, it wasn't in on the initial, you know, like uh, release. They staggered the release across about five months. Um, And, uh, you know, I'd seen a buzz about it in all the great magazines, Starlog, Fantastic Films. I read all of those. Um, And, you know, so I was really curious. It looked really cool. Um, there were some convention things, you know, up in Chicago um, where they were mm-hmm. giving stuff away. And I heard the buzz, two of the folks who I was really close to, they're a little older, but they were film reviewers locally. So they had gotten the big press packet. So as, as a lot of folks know, when they were promoting the film, they sent out these big press packets. There was a hundred page production guide, um, all kinds of information. So they were at a buzz about it. Um, so I actually was out of, uh, out of the t- town in uh, Louisville and um, visiting family, and we were in a store, and I found the paperback novel, and it already triggered, I'd not even seen the movie, 
um, that the, the novel was hard to get. Uh, so I picked up two copies of the novel, one for me, one for someone else, and then a set of the uh, Viewmaster slides, sight mm. unseen. I hadn't mm. even seen the movie. Um, <laughs> and unfortunately, the week before Christmas, it aired for one week locally. Um, so I went to see uh, it in, I think, 2010, Odyssey 2. So it was a John Lithgow yeah. double feature that day. <laughs> um, loved it so much. Um, I turned right around, took my dad to see it. And, and he, uh, we never went to the movies through the week. So like weeknight, a couple of days later, you know, we went to see it. So uh, that was a very rare occasion that we, would, my dad would go on a weeknight. Now, did you join the fan club at the time? Because that was something really cool that Fox did back then. They had the, I think it was the Blue Blazer regulars where you mm -hmm. could uh, subscribe, become a member of the fan club, and they sent you updates and, and I, I, these little push pins, I believe. And, and the, um, didn't they send also the bandana as well? Yeah, they, they definitely sent the, I didn't get the bandana that way, but they did the, um, uh, they had an address in uh, Starlog magazine. You could write off to join the club. Uh, they sent you an initial little packet that had two stickers and the little um, uh, fold lapel pen as Team Bonsai so you could show your support for uh, Buckaroo's team. Um, but they, and they sent you a little packet of information with a production folder. And then there was a set of newsletters um, that started coming out. They came out for a couple of years. Um, uh, Denise Tathwell, who was, became, you know, Denise, Denise Okuda. Okuda um, she was one of the principal organizers of that that newsletter, and it was fantastic. It was it was being pushed by 20th Century Fox uh, um, when it initially was being released, and it had a lot of behind the scenes stuff. Uh, it had little explanations of things from uh, Richter. Um, just a, it was a lot of love went into it. A lot of little illustrations and drawings, funny jokes, and stuff like that. So um, I think that really helped build the you know, the uh, um, love for the film, um, all the, you know, exploring more and more details of it. So subscribe today at TrexfirstPlus.com and don't miss a single episode of Deck 78. Fire the rockets. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman. And this is Ashley Edward Miller. And we are the Inglorious Drexperts. And we had a very animated, or should I say reanimated conversation with Jeffrey oh, Combs at Night. You see there. what I did there? Nightmare yeah. Weekend uh, a few weeks back. Uh, great horror convention in Richmond, Virginia. Um, but of course, we took the opportunity, as is our you know, obviously, our Trek's podcast Privilege. is our want uh, to talk about his amazing roles in Star Trek. Now, I have to say, we have had Jeffrey on the show before, so this is a chance to talk to him a bunch of things we hadn't talked about. Like, I was, I found it really fascinating. I had no idea that they had had in development with Stuart Gordon, House of Reanimator. Like, wow. that That was really interesting um, stories about that. Um, I did tell Jeff that... Uh, I was very happy to purchase, and it's my only Enterprise character I'm purchasing, a Shran from XO6. Uh, I made an exception to my TOS, TOS and TNG and Deep Space Nine only rule to purchase uh, right. Shran. 
and it's a gorgeous figure from our, um, the XO6 uh, uh, I don't know what they call themselves, the collection. He's always talking about museum quality replicas. I don't know what that means, but whatever. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's better than buying a shrunk. <laughs> or a shrunk. Except on Tuesday. That's right. Yeah, well, have, and what are the odds of that? Uh, exactly. I've never calculated them. But I, I do want a piece of their action. I, where, where's <laughs> Disco McCoy coming out? Uh, supposedly fairly soon. Quite soon. Oh, Quite soon. Good, 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 good. I'm, I'm excited about that. You know, I get I get annoyed every time uh, uh, I see those ads and Kirk isn't in the center. You know, I'm or even the on the poster. Ball, or on the poster, yeah, it gets me annoyed. Yeah, well. Because, you know, he is the sun on which all Star Trek orbits. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so we had a, we had a great time uh, in, in Richmond. Um, I can tell you one of the nice things when I came in keeping my, the tradition alive was there were banana pudding cookies from Richmond waiting for me at the hotel. Now, I don't know Those if that was so because good. I was an honored guest or a guest of the convention, but they were so good. I, and, and then at my last day on Monday, this was interesting. So Monday, Ashley leaves like at the crack of dawn, like four in the morning, right. right? So I'm stuck there all day because I'm on a super late flight. So I said, oh, I had such a great time going to Lyndon Baines Johnson Museum. I'll go. Well, of course, I'm in, in, in Richmond. I'm going to go to the Edgar Allan Poe Museum. So what problem with that? They're closed on Mondays. Ah, yeah. And then somebody said, well, you know, you can go to the Civil War Museum. I'm like, I'm not going to the fucking Civil War Museum. Well, <laughs> you could have you, you you just had him uh, uh, talk to you in uh, Poe's voice. Ah, that's true. I could have. I could, he could have done the whole Nevermore yeah. play for me. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't want to go to uh, see the Civil War Museum where they were going to talk about both sides when there's only one side to that conflict. So uh, I didn't, wasn't really interested. You could have gone there with Richard Dreyfuss. I he loves, he loves the Civil War. <laughs> I could have. I could have done that. I could have. I could have. So, uh, so anyway, I found this great, this great uh, fried chicken place, which was two blocks away, um, and was really good. But they had the banana pudding cookies. Wow! I almost got you. I almost got it for you. But then I figured but they wouldn't travel well. <laughs> yeah, I hit him on the plane. Exactly. Yeah, they, they were traveling in his belly. Is where oh, they my. were traveling. I did. I got two of them. I got two. One I ate at the restaurant, and then I had the other one, which I was bringing back, which I ended up eating on the plane when I got hungry. <laughs> yeah, well, they sound like, great. They were delicious. <laughs> but when we go back, I know exactly where we can get them. Because they're back. made in Richmond. We're going back. They're made in Richmond. So okay. uh, you're going to love it. You know, I'm telling you, you're going to love it. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, Jeffrey's such an interesting guy. I mean, obviously, we know him from his brilliant work in Star Trek playing, you know, multiple roles, everything from, uh, 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 you know, uh, Inspector... Um, Gadget? Bra- Inspector <laughs> Gadget! <laughs> Inspector... Um- <laughs> Sorry. Inspector, yeah, uh, what, Brunt? Brunt? Brunt, FCA! Yeah, and, and of course, uh, Shran and Enterprise, and playing the Wayoon 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. Monday, two, Tuesday, three, Wednesday, Thursday. Wayoons. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a bunch uh, of other roles, uh, uh. but uh, he's so <laughs> he, he's so great. But then, of course, you know, I first discovered him. I think many of you did in, in Reanimator. Sure. And I, I love that movie. As a you know, uh, I, I think I saw it for the first time, maybe in college, maybe in high school. I don't remember, but I know I had this big poster of Jeffrey Combs, huge six foot poster, French Reanimator poster on the back of right. my door in college, which was uh, awesome. You had the big green needle. Yeah. Yeah. 
that. My, uh, my great regret from uh, Nightmare Weekend is we were seated next to Jeff the entire freaking time. I brought my, uh, my Arrow uh, reanimator Blu-ray mm. for him to sign. And over the course of the entire convention, I managed to get him to sign it zero times, including on Monday morning on our way out because I was with him. It was it was uh, him and and me and Andy Dimoff who were driving to the to the airport in the transpo, and I and I still didn't get him to sign it. So it's you were, just were in have the to van the with him, and you didn't get him to sign it. I remember you left on Sunday saying, "I can't believe I didn't get." Uh, Jeffrey's autograph. Uh, I'll have to get it in Columbus, right? And then you're in the van with him, and you didn't. And get I was it. in the van. It was just one of those things. Yeah, just one of those that's things. eighty. Uh, that's eighty bucks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, but that's maybe that, next that's, time. You had much better people in your van than I had. I had uh, <laughs> the guy from uh, uh, Fulci Zombie, uh, who's a really lovely guy, but you know, really didn't have much to say, and I'm not a big. Fulci fan, so wasn't that interesting. But you had uh, Andrew D- Divoff and uh, and Combs. Although yep. at four in the morning, I bet nobody really wanted to talk. Oh no, no, no! The au contraire. Uh, oh really? And we everybody was talking, and and Jeff was just telling me even more about the uh, his trip to the Poe Museum, Edgar Allan Poe, and all these things. And it was just fascinating. And it's great to listen to him talk. I mean, my other regret for the weekend is on stage. And actually at all, I, I didn't get to confess to him that I once wrote a single line for him in an episode of Dota just so that I could bring him in and listen to him say it. <laughs> so getting to listen to Jeff just wax rhapsodic about Poe and all of these things was just was fantastic. It well, we'll was, get to uh, do that in, in Columbus because he'll be there and, yep. uh, you know, at the uh, Galaxy Con. And it'll be good because Darren, he specifically requested um, that he only wants us interviewing him in the future because he said we were such great interviewers. Well, that's great. It's amazing how often that happens. Yeah, go figure, right? (laughs) I mean, this is not the first time. Um, It's not that other people aren't good interviewers. It's just that, you know. the experts? Possibly. Um, but it was it was funny too because of course he was in Whose Life Is Anyway with Richard Dreyfus. Oh, that's one of right. His first movies. But um, uh, we was like, did you go talk to to Richard Rick? You know, and it's like, no, no. I he was nervous. It was like it was funny. Right. It's like you at home, you're like thinking, oh, it's nervous to meet the stars. Like he was. No, nervous. they feel the same way. Yeah. It was afraid. Yeah, it was like uh, <laughs> it, it was funny because you remember when Frakes had just met Mike Tyson. Yes. At. Uh, I love you, Riker. In Austin. He was like an 11-year-old boy. Oh, my God. He was so excited. Yeah. So excited. Um, But uh, Jeffrey was great. And it was great that we got to talk to him about playing Montgomery Clift and Norma Jean in Maryland, who I don't know why I confused with Tyrone Power for a second during the interview. I'm like, I'm I'm, I'm talking about Nightmare Alley. It's like, wait, wait, Montgomery Cliff wasn't in Nightmare Alley. It was freaking my, it was Ty Ty Power. But anyway, it was a long weekend and I was very, very tired. And the other thing we didn't get to talk about, and he's so great, I'm going to mention it now and then we're going to get to the interview. Um, He's so great as the question in the Justice League animated series. Yep. Did you guys watch that? Yep. Mm -mm. Isn't he great? I loved him. He was perfect. Oh my God. That show is, was so good. You know, as much as they f- messed up all those movies, Justice League, 
you know, the animated series was phenomenal. Well, it's just like Star Wars. And uh, and he's just great as the question. He was so good in those those episodes. I mean, the, all the voice casting was great, but um, he was particularly awesome in that. We'll have to talk to you one day, Ashley, about um, casting and animation, casting voices and animation. Because, you know, obviously you did such a great job on your show. And, you know, so many of the great animated shows like Batman and the animated series and stuff are really marked by, like, brilliant voice casting and what goes into that. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's definitely its own beast. And it's, uh, it can be very different from casting for, uh, for camera. You know who the voice on the Spider-Man 2 game is of Peter Parker? Yes, it's Yuri Lowenthal. It is your buddy, uh, Yuri Lowenthal. teaming Yuri Lowenthal and Tony Todd from yeah. my show onto uh, the biggest video game ever. You're welcome, America. <laughs> <laughs> you have Ashley to thank. Uh, yeah, that's right no, here. No, that's good. That's good. Yeah, we also did a couple of panels at Nightmare Weekend that we'll we'll put make available on Deck Seventy Eight on um, uh, horror TV shows and um, uh, the horror movies of nineteen eighty three. The horror. Oh. The horror. The horror. Um, the horror was the fact that none of us were able to afford anything at the Greg Jean auction. That's the horror. That's right. But anyway, well, look, this is a great interview we got with Jeffrey Combs. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So uh, stay tuned after these brief commercial messages, and we'll be back with Jeffrey Combs live from Richmond. a crazy schedule, having trouble finding time to shop during your busy days. Well, have no fear, because Crazy Eddie's here with Moonlight Madness. All great Crazy Eddie superstores will be open this Friday from 2 p.m. till midnight with incredible sale prices that'll make you glow in the dark. There's going to be hourly specials where the prices get lower and lower as the midnight hour approaches. So see Crazy Eddie this Friday till midnight with prices that are unbindable. The series. A new reign of terror begins on Friday the 13th. An old antique dealer makes a pact with Satan and seals it with his own death. And the antiques remain cursed. Now the curse begins for the three who must retrieve his legacy of evil. Join these unsuspecting victims on a mission into nightmare. Friday the 13th. The series. The terror continues next week. Me taking my third curtain call at the Alhambra Bradford. Sit! They loved me. Oh, sorry. I thought this was the party. This is the party. Oh. Right. Who's for Atari? <laughs> What's more, it's my party. Music hall's dead sunshine. Pac-Man, Missile Command, Super Breakout. That's where the action is. All linked up, young man. Just a moment. <laughs> right. Anyone for Haunted House? <laughs> You have to be fast on your feet for this one. Oh, don't say that. I want to show you who's tap dancing next. Atari. Simply more fun and games. Read them and weep, boys. <laughs> Talk about a winning hand. All of my disturbing, revolting brilliance is now available on my Tales from the Crypt trading cards. Scandalous scenes. Gory details. They're all here in deadly color. Collect the complete set. Your friends will just die of envy. <laughs> Coming Sunday, April 8th. She's dead. 
wrapped in plastic. 11.30 a.m., February 24th. Entering the town of Twin Peaks. The Los Angeles Times says Twin Peaks is certainly like nothing else on television. W.C. Fields would say it'd rather be here than Philadelphia. The Washington Post calls it unprecedented. This, you gotta see. Bobby, did you kill Laura Palmer? Sunday, April 8th, from David Lynch, Twin Peaks. Oh, things are spooky tonight here at Nightmare Weekend. I was about to say Galaxy Con. So uh, spooky. I'm back. We're back from... Uh, Outer space? From outer Wait, space no. for right. this morning. Mark A. Altman, showrunner Pandora, writer for Librarians, a bunch of other TV shows. And uh, I'm not even going to mention House of the Dead because it's awful. And the showrunner of Dota Dragon's Blood and uh, writer of her Fringe and Lore and Surrey with the Fringe on top, Ashley Edward Miller. Hi. We are so excited. We we're so lucky because we both had the chance to work with this next icon and we don't use the word loosely because he truly is an icon of film, of stage, of television. Remarkable talent, amazing person. You're so lucky to be able to spend the next hour with him, 50 minutes if we're gonna be technical. The great Jeffrey Combs. <laughs> That's you. You get that wow, fancy that IKEA chair. Yeah, I have my own microphone and everything. <laughs> so, three, three waters. Uh, we're good. You, you must be thrilled to be here at the uh, in the home of uh, Edgar Allan Poe. The museum is here, and obviously, we everyone knows of your great affinity for Poe and your one man wonderful one man play, Nevermore. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about how your obsession with Edgar Allan Poe began? I wouldn't say it was an obsession. I would just say it was uh, incredible interest and in, in, intriguing uh, character that he was. Um, uh, you know, my first memory of Poe was uh, like most Americans in high school. You know, you you read. Uh, I do remember the Raven reading that, and also Annabelle Lee. Uh, that it was like, you know, poetry, come on, man, I don't want to, poetry. But he was so incredibly accessible as a poet that it spoke to you, and, and you got this sense of, of melancholy and loss and depth to, to it. And, of course, you know, the more I studied Telltale Heart I, I, and the Raven... But the Telltale Heart, as a story, is so well structured. It, it, it's, it's, it, you know, I put it in my one-man show many years later, and it, it never ceased to amaze me. What a piece of incredible uh, building of suspense and release, and 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 elevating and the release is just agonizingly beautiful that way. So that was high school. And then you got to cut way, way forward in my career. Uh, I, was, I, I was, it was probably uh, 15 years ago. I was kind of banging around for uh, something that I could, a, a historical character that I could portray. And to be honest, I was really kind of trying to get away from anything that had to do with, 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 with horror. I, 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 I love history, 
And so I was like looking around for somebody interesting that I could actually portray in what form, I, I had no idea. But I, I finally came across a biography of Poe. And I got started reading it, and I went, my God, this guy is so complex and so brilliant and tragic and uh, soaringly brilliant. And I uh, said to Stuart Gordon, I just read this biography. I don't know why anybody has never done a movie about Poe. He's America's Van Gogh. He's tragic and brilliant. And what's going on with that? And Stuart listened and processed that more than I ever would have imagined that he would. About a year and a half later, I get an email from Stuart, and he said, I'm doing a Masters of Horror. horror. Masters of Horror. <laughs> That's a whole different show. That's right. It's kind of a reality show. That's an idea. Um, and and uh, I don't know if any of you know, but Masters of Horror was this short-lived only two-season mixed-garris horror masters, masters of horror directors were given uh, an hour uh, and if they came to them with a script and it was greenlit by them, you had, you could do your vision and even then, we're talking like, what, 2007? Yeah, it was like mid-2000s, yeah. And you could do it on film which even then was like really sort of starting to fade. This was a real lure for a lot of directors, film, you know. So he said, I want you to play Poe. Uh, I did an adaptation of The Black Cat. So I uh, go up to Vancouver because that's where they shot those. And while we were filming, Stuart said, you know, you know, you ought to, I feel like I'm in the presence of Poe here. You should do a one-man show. And I went, like, not only no, but fuck no. I, I, <laughs> I, I'm too lazy. That's a lot of work. And I'm, uh, no, well, this is good. Black Cat's good, you know. Uh, but circumstances, um, I remember there was like an economic downturn, 2008, 2009, and I really felt... I really, really felt kind of helpless. I hadn't, all of us did. We, things went away and you didn't feel like you had any control. And uh, this idea of the one-man show, Stuart gently sort of urging me to do this for a year and a half, and I, and, and I finally called him and I said, well, what would that be like? What would we do? And we started brainstorming about this and in short notice he called and left a message and said I got us a theater awesome and that made it really 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 real <laughs> all of a sudden and here's when it's available and I was like oh so I called Mick Garris uh, I just on a whim I said Mick you know uh, is that wardrobe still around because I'm here to tell you, when I went to Vancouver, they built me from scratch a period wardrobe. It wasn't pulled off of a... It was built, and it was just great. Fit me like a glove, and, uh, and I said, is that still around? And he said, boy, you are really fortunate because we didn't get back for a third season. We've sold 
all the wardrobe to a, to, to, to a costume house up here in Vancouver. However, we haven't shipped it yet. So let me go look. And a week later, I get a box, and it has the entire wardrobe in it. Bless you, Mick. And the serendipity of that told me uh, we're kind of lucky here. These are fortunate things. And uh, it was a four-week run, and it exploded in a month, six months, eight months. I'd take it down for a while, go back up and revive it. And people started asking me to do it around the country, New York, Bicentennial at Baltimore, Austin, Texas, uh, uh, San Diego Theater, uh, uh, Nashville. Uh, I, I was uh, film festival in Montreal. I, I, I was uh, I was doing it all over the place, and um, and then and then COVID hit, and that's sort of that's the last time I've ever ever done it. But it's a glorious, beautiful homage to Poe. Um, it's kind of a recital, and it goes wrong because Poe had. Since we're our own worst enemy, and at one point in the show, I kind of pull out a bottle, and the audience just loves this idea. Oh, the party's beginning, and then they, it just gets worse and worse, and they're like, God, why did he, why is he drinking? This is so bad. This is so bad. So, but redemption at the end. So it, 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 it's a show that just sort of shows all the tragedy and the beauty and, and his words, poetry, his stories, his, his history, uh, uh, what makes him tick his tragedies. It's, so I'm very, very proud to have had an opportunity to do that. That's a long answer. Thank no, you. That's a great it's, answer. It, it, it's fascinating, and I, I only wish, and ha, has this something been discussed, turning into a, a film or just is shooting, filming the performance? Yeah, don't get me started about that. It's been uh, a lot of... Uh, a lot of high hopes about that, a lot of false starts. Uh, we attempted a Kickstarter campaign at the very sort of, none of us knew what we were doing really it's too much with Kickstarter. It was in its infancy. Uh, we, we, we made a lot of mistakes and, and, and um, it, it, uh, we were going to make a movie. Uh, Stuart said, let's make a movie of it. And um, it just never, what I learned kind of starkly is you know, Stuart and I are kind of known for H.P. Lovecraft. If it had been H.P. Lovecraft, there is this pop culture mm -hmm. kind of uh, enthusiasm for something like that, especially since Reanimator and From Beyond and our, our working on those together. But Poe, uh, Poe is revered, but literary. Right, right. Sure. And no one, it just didn't have the same sort of... Uh, Flight options. <laughs> it was it couldn't get elevated, and um, so that's been very frustrating. I would love to have captured it. I still would, but uh, it just seems to be more and more distant. In Were its you a fan of the Corman adaptations at all? Not really, because I, I think that they're kind of really. That's Poe. Uh, they they seem kind of uh, sending it up. It, didn't really correlate with anything, Poe. It was it's almost like capitalizing on a on a title right. and a name. Like they acquired the IP and then they have to exploit it. It just did. It, none of it was really particularly. I mean, 
Poe-ish, really. It was kind of parody or didn't correlate with many of the the stories. You know what I mean? They were just kind of kind of odd. So I want to go back to something you said when you started getting into the story, how you were looking for material that wasn't horror. But as the story goes on, the names that come out, First of all, obviously, you, you land on Poe. I do, um, because not because he was horror, but because, because he's just such a captivating... Absolutely, absolutely. But Stuart Gordon, Mick Garris, and what it speaks to is this very you know, long, intimate relationship with not just horror, right, as we sort of understand it here in the context of the convention, but, but horror in terms of just the darkness, right? The, the, the darkness in the stories that we tell and that we, we consume. Yes. And it sounds like, you know, it, and, and I guess that's what interests me is, is why you wanted to get, a, get away from that thing. Was it just sort of like, I want to see other genres for a while? Or, or was there something else to <laughs> well, that? Well, you know, long before I ever did film and television, uh, let's just say, you know, I did a lot of theater with a lot of different genres and a lot of different eras and, and from from you know Shakespeare to 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 Moliere to you know new plays to it, it was a real versatile mixed bag of my experience on, on in theater and in fact when a casting director saw me in a in a play and said I I'm casting something you might be right for which turned out to be Reanimator, you know the. You were right for that, by the way. Yeah, yeah, I kind of, kind of grabbed onto that one. I embraced that, and I embrace horror. It has its place, but for me, it has its big place. Okay, it can really speak to everything about life, our fears and worries and anxieties. I relish it. But I was looking to break out of stereotypes. Oh, you're that horror guy. Oh, you're that sci-fi guy. It's quixotic. It's futile. But I was looking for something completely different. I wasn't turning my back on any of that, clearly. I embraced it, but I wanted to find more flowers for the bouquet. But okay. you're in good company because look at somebody like Anthony Perkins who was like a matinee idol. And Magic. Like friendly persuasion and all this stuff. And then he plays Norman Bates and suddenly he's a horror icon, right? Yes, but exactly. It gave, it gave him a chance to direct. It gave him a chance to do other things. Exactly. Yeah. But I am sure that he also at some point went, why can't I uh, do other things as well? You know, uh, 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 the business loves to pigeonhole and stereotype you. You know, if your first big break is in a soap, well, you're a soap actor, aren't you? If your first big break is a sitcom, like, you you, you know, you got a series on a sitcom, well, then maybe nobody takes you as a, seriously as a, as a serious actor I- anymore. And now you have this battle of, but wait, 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 wait. I, I, come on. You, you know, theater is far more forgiving about that because they understand that t- t- an actor needs to be versatile and, 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 and you have an opportunity because if you're at a theater for a season, that's so kind of 
variety of, of, of plays that you're doing. But once you're known for something in a, in a film or a TV show, you're just identified and stamped. And then I, I think it makes casting directors' job easy. You know, if we need that, we know where to go. But otherwise, you know, I just don't think they have a whole lot of imagination. So this is the, I say futile, because it kind of is. This futile attempt, it's silly, probably, but damn it, I'm gonna, I was going to try. That was sort of my idea, yeah. but, but, but Poe charmed me. He, as an actor and looking for a, 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 a character, it's like, I don't care if he's associated with horror or not. This guy has got to be celebrated and, and explored. I want to. My soul wants to. And uh, he was a poet. You know, he wrote only like eight, nine, like, horror stories of all the stories they wrote so there's a handful there were all kinds of other things that he did he considers himself a, a poet first and foremost but we think of the raven but we don't think of all the other lovely romantic florid beautiful poems that he that that, that he also wrote they're there there's Clear, he was a genius. He got typecast. We all get typecast, <laughs> and I guess that's what I was trying to do: uh, is uh, find something that would break that mold. Uh, a lot of actors try to do this. You mentioned yesterday. You reminded us that you had been, uh, you know, in, uh, with Richard Dreyfus. The last time you were with Richard Dreyfus was in Whose Life Is It Anyway? I was one of my very early second. Third gig was uh, one day on whose life is it anyway? Which was a Broadway play. I think it won the Tony, and they made a movie, and uh, Richard Dreyfus starred in it. And uh, I, I, I think I walked past a set on my day and saw him uh, in there. But uh, but uh, but my scene was with the great John Cassavetes. And uh, it's just one scene and uh, one day and, uh, and uh, like, but we're in the same movie, me in a much lesser role than him, of course, but still. And you worked with Steve Barton on Man With Two Brains, too. So early in your career, you were kind of working with these legendary figures yes. in the film. Yes, I did. Steve Martin. Uh, that was a weird one. I, I, I was... Uh, I think I was doing a play down at the taper or something. And uh, my agent called and said, get over to Warner Brothers right now. Uh, I guess in retrospect, someone may have dropped out or wasn't available suddenly. And so I go to Warner Brothers casting director, I don't remember who, Marion Doherty maybe. And, um, and I, I read and she goes, go right now. Go right now. They're shooting, uh, you know, down on Rossmore south of Melrose, you know, they were in a kind of a lovely big house and uh, they said, you'll go meet the director. And uh, so I got there and there was a big RV in the, uh, in the uh, driveway and they said, yeah, go in there. And the director will be out. And what Carl Reiner, Carl, the great Carl Reiner. 
<laughs> and uh, you know, and um, they said, okay, let's go. You know, it was like on a break between setups or something, you know. So I did my reading, and he goes, Combs, Combs, are you any relation to Earl Combs? Uh, the baseball player played for the Yankees. I had no, I had no fucking idea. It's like, <laughs> no, 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 I'm not. And he said, that's okay, kid, you got yourself a job. <laughs> so he was a big Yankees fan, right. and, and as it turns out, Earl Combs uh, is in the Hall of Fame, and he batted between Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, okay? <laughs> and he was uh, from uh, Kentucky. Uh, but I didn't know that time. The scariest part of that story for me is this, because, you know, the, the, when you hear somebody tell a story about their agent calling and saying, you have to get to place X or Y yeah. right away. Right away. The context we bring to it now is we live in the age of cell phones, when there yes. can be texts, and you can be anywhere. And all I can imagine is, just the, the terror for me is that you wouldn't have been next to your phone when the phone call came. You know, that you wouldn't have been reachable. I mean... Yeah. My memory is that I wasn't home, too. But my agent somehow knew how to get a message to me by calling down to the Mark Taper Forum and someone hands me a slip of paper, wow. call your agent. You know, that kind of... That kind of... Seri- but that, that's just, that, that was the world in those yeah, days. Yeah. Right? Serendipity ruled, yeah. It's true. And, or people had beepers. Now, you know, it's going to buzz in my back pocket and, you know, call me. Mm-hmm. You, you know... Well, I got to ask you another last question about early in your career, but you played Montgomery Clift. I and, did. And, yeah. and I, I'm wondering how you prepare for a role like that. And you talk about also Poe for, for a real life figure, as opposed to when you're preparing to play, say, Shran or or or, or Herbert West or someone. What is the is the preparation different or is it the same? Because everyone's real in a script, whether they really walk the earth or just a, yeah. you know, a screenwriter's imagination. I, I was, um, uh, my agent called and said, you know, they're casting uh, this uh, HBO series called Norma Jean in Maryland. It was really a clever script about, uh, it was Mira Sorvino and Ashley Judd. And they were one was playing, uh, uh, Mira Sorvino was playing Marilyn Monroe, and Ashley Judd was playing uh, Norma Jean. And they were kind of uh, the same person, but they were, it was almost like this talking to each other, like the old person, the, the old self with the new self kind of thing. Uh, very psychological that way. And, uh, and they said, you know, uh, you know, you're going to audition for Montgomery Clift. And I went, oh, <laughs> right. Uh, no, I'm not right for that. I'm nothing like Montgomery Clift. I don't look like him. I got a little pug nose. He did not. This is, this is stupid. Uh, agents go, well, you know, go. Just go. Just, you know, whatever. They always say that. You know, you go in there going, it's just. I'm just not going to get this. So I kind of looked at the material I prepared and I went in. And um, I think there's no way in hell I'm going to get this part, okay? Uh, so many actors in, in L.A., uh, they're going to find somebody who looks just like him or pretty close, not me. But I got the part. And I uh, talked to the director later and he said, well, I'm not looking for somebody who looks. I'm looking for a quality. 
just the quality of him. So I had this lovely scene with um, Mira Sorvino and, and, and Montgomery Clift kind of drinking and doing drugs probably uh, at night uh, shooting the misfits, mm-hmm. you know? And it, it was a really kind of touching, lovely, like they were real pals, they were friends. And uh, it, it turned out really well. I watched the mits, misfits, obviously, and I kind of studied mostly how he, how he carried himself. You know, he had this strange sort of stooped-shouldered kind of walk, and I remember from the movie, and, and sort of tried to incorporate that a little bit, and I wasn't doing it, trying in any way to do an impersonation of him. It's just kind of a quality. Yeah. That's why I, you would have been so great in the remake of Nightmare Alley, um, you know, doing Clift. It, it just reminds me of that. So one of the obviously turning points in your career, and you mentioned it, is when you got cast in um, Reanimator. Herbert West is at the top of his class in medical school. How can you teach such dribble? These people are here to learn, and you're closing their minds before they even have a chance. What are He's you? brilliant, but a little weird. I've broken the six to 12 minute barrier. I've conquered brain death. His experiments have always been unorthodox. It was dead. But lately, they're getting out of hands. And he's just made a discovery that could wake up the dead. Herbert West has affected reanimation in dead animal tissue. What are you thinking? How do you feel? You? 15 cc's of reagent being administered. Once you wake up the dead, you've got a real mess on your hands. Dead? Not anymore. Herbert West brought a lot of dead people back to life. And not one of them showed any appreciation. H.P. Lovecraft's classic tale of horror, Reanimator. Mr. West. You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head? Get a job in a sideshow. It will scare you to pieces. Yeah. And is, I guess, you know, here we are. Have you guys seen all that? These, <laughs> all these years later, you know, talking about it resonates with a whole new generation of fans. Um, could you possibly have imagined when you got cast in the film that it would have this enduring appeal. Not a clue. Not a clue. Uh, what's really strange is that at the, you know, I was doing this play. It was coming to an end. Casting director says, you might be right. Yeah, 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 sure. But I got a call from my agents, kind of go in for this thing. And I meet this bushy-haired guy, Stuart Gordon, yeah, hi, how are you? I have no idea who H.P. Lovecraft is. But I was like, he said, you know, it's H.P. Love. Yeah, 
Oh, yeah, great. You know, as if I loved his work. You know, but I really didn't, you know, know it. But let me preface that. Uh, once I started reading or more about Lovecraft, I actually did because he permeated pop culture already. He was everywhere. I used to read Erie Magazine when I was a kid and, and all of these sort of scary... He's everywhere. You know, I just didn't put it together. And uh, I got a call back and, uh, you know, got the part. But I honestly thought, okay, okay, this movie is a bloody, bloody mess. I mean, it's... No one's going to see this movie. But I will get a chance to be on a set. This is a good role. This is a good role. It became an even better role after editing, okay? The original script had a lot more to do with the plight of the lovers. It was all about how this whole thing was affecting them, much more than what's in the movie now. A, 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 a point that they thought so too, because I mean it's there, but it was there. It was in the script. There was a lot more scenes between the two of them and what's going to happen. Look at the look at the credits. Well, I'm not first card. Right, Bruce right. Is, yeah. I'm a, I'm a, I'm last card. I'm an and Jeffrey Combs because their 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 conception. You know, there's the old saying: there's the movie you write, there's the movie you shoot, and there's the movie you edit. That's, that's really true. Uh, so they, they, they really streamlined the story, and I, I, I think that, that, that Herbert West benefited from that. It was the driving force, and suddenly uh, he's this uh, unstoppable, you know, juggernaut of a character. And a juicy, juicy role. I had a great time and I learned... Too juicy sometimes. Huh? Too juicy sometimes. Yeah, a lot of juice. Uh, Juice and a needle. And uh, I just was eating up learning the technique. Uh, Up until then, I'd done a day here and a day there or maybe a week on a one little horror movie, but I, I, I didn't have a, that's what I wanted, experience on a set that learn this new craft, really learn it instead of, uh, you know, being frustrated, just eating it up. I was loving that. And uh, I never would have imagined that it would have exploded like it did and that I would be here in 2023 talking about it and right. signing oh. autographs. This is not a concept for me. Well, uh, who could have? I'm sorry. I, I, I don't know that, you, you know, you said that uh, the movie was streamlined. I don't know the movie was streamlined. I, I think what the, what the movie found was your performance, right? You always cut around the thing that's working. And um, what has always struck me about that film and you in it, and then you do it again and from beyond, uh, is that you create this character who is simultaneously... Um, Vulnerable, unhinged, human, dangerous, all of these things. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, there's this self-effacing quality to how you describe it, that you were just looking for the experience. But, but really, you committed um, to what was in that role and what was on that page, I think, in an incredible way. I think I also lucked out because the play that I was doing before it, okay, was... Uh, a character that was somewhat like Herbert West. It was about three Vietnam vets in a, in a, in a damaged 
individuals in a, although it's a comedy, in a, in a, in a it's called Private Wars, written by a dear friend of mine, and it was on Broadway, and then it was, this was the West Coast premiere, and, and, and my character was this uptight, sort of rich boy from Long Island who thought he was better than everybody else pompous and but it was all a facade because really he was a broken individual and scared to death inside and so to get to herbert west i just had to get rid of all of the the the, the vulnerability the, the, all of that and i just had to be balls out confident and and uh, so it it was like the work had already, you know, maybe it's why the casting director said you might be right for this, because I was kind of like already kind of getting there. So, so there's that. And another interesting thing about it is that at the same time I was being considered for Herbert West, I was offered to play Romeo in a production of Romeo and Juliet. Which is basically the same role. Same role, sure. So I, I think back on that and I go, well, I, uh, <laughs> that's range. That's a good range. I'll take that. Uh, uh, you know, and I, had, I, I, I turned down Romeo to do Herbert West. You know, it's Romeo. Herbert because one was Romeo. stage. And, you know, I'd done, that, that wasn't my focus at that point. I, I, I'd done a lot of theater. I wanted to play Romeo, but... This is film, and I wanted to do film. But if, if Romeo had been able to bring a decapitated head to Juliet's bedside, maybe you would have considered it. <laughs> That's yeah, it, right. Maybe she would have gotten off on that. <laughs> I don't know. Um, you, you know, this began a lifelong friendship with you, with Stuart Gordon. Yeah. Um, and, but another director who you worked with that, I mean, you did some incredible work with, and I know it was a, a, one of your personal favorites was The Frighteners, working with Peter Jackson. Oh, God. Yeah. Yes, uh, an unbelievable experience. Uh, one of the most easy and collaborative experiences I've ever had with a director. Uh, he, he, he's, he was wide open. Uh, he had his ideas, but he had an open ear to, uh, and eyes to, well, that's a good idea. You, you know what I mean? It was so uh, generous and uh, not restrictive. And uh, it's a wonder that I got that part because my agents had pitched me, you know, two, three months earlier and they said, no, he's too young. He's too young. And they kept looking and they kept looking and, they, and, and, and Peter couldn't find what he was looking for. So like right near the end of the casting process, I, uh, they said, okay, bring him in. And the real fortunate, really, this doesn't happen anymore. It's a real shame in this business. I had the great good fortune that the, the scene that I auditioned for was the scene where I'm interrogating Michael J. Fox. It's very wordy and it's long. And I had a week with the material. Mm -hmm. We don't do that anymore. A lot of the time your agent will say, you know, I'm sending you the material, and your audition is tomorrow at 10 o'clock. On Zoom. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, now on Zoom. Yeah. yeah it's hideous. It's, it's, it's so wrong. That's not how actors prepare. There's no time there, especially with really dense, beautiful material like that. And so I had a week. I had a week to pace in my garage and 
get something going and uh, feel comfortable enough that I could walk in that room and lay down something. And, and Peter gave me some really good adjustments and, and, I, and I was able to uh, manifest those because they knew the material. You know, it's hard to take direction and change something when you're, you're grappling with what you, new stuff. So he saw that I could adjust and take direction and, um, and I got the part it ultimately. And you talk about how Reanimator benefited from the post-production process, but Frighteners was a little different because, of course, it was a huge studio movie with a, a top line by a big, big star at the time, Michael Fox, um, and that Peter Jackson, even though he had done the brilliant Heavenly Creatures, hadn't yet done Lord of the Rings. So Universal meddled a lot with that picture. Was that something that ultimately, how did you feel about You say they meddled? Meddled. Meddling kids. Well, <laughs> I do know that they wanted... Peter to shoot the movie in America. That's what they wanted. And Peter said, no. <laughs> because Peter was loyal to his crew and his production staff, and he knew that if he came to America, he couldn't bring them with him. He couldn't rely on his team anymore, okay? And, and he would... Uh, they were his strength. They would, they were, that was a bond. And his and and his and Weeda, his special effects wing, all of that, and so he went to great lengths shooting uh, material to show them that he could make New Zealand look like America. So if you watch that movie, you're going, "Where are we? Portland? Maybe are we in Portland? I think we're in Portland." You know, or Seattle, somewhere in Seattle, Northwest, <laughs> something like it feels like that. Right. Right. Because it's kind of like, like that. Um, so, you know, he had to fight battles to, to be steadfast and, and get them, keep the movie where he's comfortable. Right. Um, and bless him for that. You, you know, so it wasn't like, so he also knew <laughs> that if he's way down there, less meddling. Mm -hmm. Right. That was very smart. And uh, he's absolutely right about that. Because, you know, keep the, you know, he's the cook, he's the chef. You guys, leave me alone. The further you are from Universal Studio City, the better. The yeah. better off. Yeah, the, yeah. the more he has uh, control over his vision. And, of course, we'd be remiss to talk about the other gift you got, which was uh, the Star Trek franchise, oh. which, of course, you made such an impression in a multitude of roles. Yeah. Sometimes in the same episodes. Once, once. Uh, yeah, no, I look back sometimes at my um, career, and I, I'm, I'm, I, I shiver with the serendipity, the, the happy accidents, the if-not-for-that-nothing kind of notion uh, you know what if I hadn't gone to that 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 one audition and nothing would have blossomed from that uh, uh, yeah I mean I got w one episode of of Star Trek it was a one character never to return however my dear friend from my theater days was a series regular Rene Bergenois And Rene was preparing to direct, for the first time, an episode, a Ferengi episode. And uh, 
And he suggested that I play this character, this new Ferengi uh, adversary for for, uh, for for Quark. And uh, they were somewhat resistant because, well, he just worked for us. We can't, and Renee went, well, good actor, he's in makeup. You'll, nobody will ever know. And uh, they they acquiesced. They said yes, and and that started. And then I recurred. They liked me doing that, and they recurred and recurred. And and then the great Ira Bear, who then I didn't really know, but has become a good friend of mine, great friend of mine. He um, he came up to me one day and said, you know, we want to bring you back as somebody that we uh, that we where we see your face. That's what he said. And I went, yeah, okay, sure. And you know, it's Hollywood, right? But they did. But they did. And uh, that was Wayoon. I feel honored. Your psychographic profile is required reading for Vorta field supervisors. I probably know things about you you don't know yourself. If you're trying to impress me, you can forget it. What would you say if I offered to make you absolute ruler of the Federation? No president, no Starfleet chief of staff, just you. I'd say your psychographic profile of me isn't as good as you think. <laughs> Just doing my job. And I was killed. I was killed at the end of that episode. So it was like, okay, great, you know, I did that. He kept his word, and that's really fabulous. But I didn't know. They were going, why did we kill this guy? Why did we kill this guy? And they cloned. They decided, if someone said, hey, we can clone him. And uh, I wound up doing, you know, over almost 50 episodes of Star Trek because of these, these little, these little infinitesimal you you can't even conceive of these things turning into what they turn into. I can't. It's shocking to me. But there's this whole concept of actors sometimes acting their way onto a show. You not only acted your way onto the show, in a, in a great bit of cinematic historical irony, you reanimated yourself. <laughs> that's true. Oh, onto that's a show. very good. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I did, actually. I never thought of that. I was reanimated. <laughs> That's very good. As you can see, Captain, even after a hundred years, the situation still evokes anger on both sides. We will release our prisoners on the following conditions. Immediate withdrawal of all Vulcan military forces. The so-called compromise is to be rescinded, and the Vulcans must concede irrevocable sovereignty of Waiton to Andoria. And yeah. Do you feel it was a big advantage that somebody like Ira, Ira Stephen Bear, who was the showrunner, was a walking IMDb? So, of course, he was always looking for actors. Always. That he loved and respected and knew their work. Yeah. And, and his frustration was he had such a library of knowledge of actors from the past that he relished and enjoyed. And he was constantly, like, bringing these, these ideas up for, 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 for actors that that could come on the show and and you know the, the studio heads and, and, and they're just they don't have the knowledge they don't have the library in their head they don't get it they don't see the value in this stuff all they know is you know this is the list of people that we pre-approve you know and it's just the same people all the time it's the same oh you pre-approve okay 
you know, <laughs> so he was very imaginative and, and persistent. And so I'm not the only one that Ira elevated. He's just a, so grateful for, for his vision. I mean, that's why you look at that show and, you know, the recurring, I mean, whether it's Andy Robinson or Frank Langella, oh my God. Fletcher. Oh. I mean, it's extraordinary. Extraordinary. Brock Peters. I, yeah. I mean, the people that, that, that Ira said, get that person, it was just deep and wide. Yeah. Well, I know you guys have questions, so we should do that because we're, we're rapidly running out of time. Um, so I want to make sure we give you a chance to ask Jeff some questions. And, of course, he'll be back signing tomorrow at his booth. So uh, if you miss him tonight, you definitely want to catch him tomorrow. So go ahead. Uh, by the mic, please. Come on, Come on up to the mic. Step to the mic so we can keep track. Hi. Hey. Um, you've played investigators and conspiracy theorists. Do you have um, an interesting theory about Poe's death? Good question. I think that Poe was, um, you know, there's different theories, right? There's like, well, there was an election going on. And in those days, people would round up people that were drunk and they would, um, they would have them go vote and then they would have them go outside and uh, change clothes and then go back in and, 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 and vote again or take them over to another precinct and have them vote there. And, and a lot of these people were happy to do this because they were plying them with alcohol, drinks, you know, you, you know, so they were like, okay, sure. You know, it's just the way it kind of was. So there are a couple of theories. I think, think that maybe he got, uh, he got drunk and they, they had him do that. He was found not in his own clothes when he was taken to the hospital. He wasn't wearing his clothes. So, there, so, so there's that, right? Uh, there's also the one that intrigues me is that he was on his way through Baltimore. He was going north, but the river was up, and he couldn't take the ferry. And so he had to turn around and go back into Baltimore, and there were like two guys that may have rolled him, just may have rolled him, and maybe they beat him and gave him brain damage. So, so maybe the alcohol, if he was one of these voting people, was poisonous, you know, and there were no like uh, regulations yeah, no about FDA this right stuff. Now, yeah. uh, uh, maybe he had some sort of aneurysm. I, I, I just, I don't really no, it's just that he lingered for in delirium for two or three days in the hospital and, and died. I, I, it, it, we'll never know. We'll never know. But it's tragic. And uh, he was 39. He had a drinking problem. Uh, but it was... I just don't know. I know his brother died from cirrhosis of the liver at 25. Um, so I don't have a, a steadfast idea of it, but something around in there, like he was, he was rolled, you know, like mugged, uh, everything stolen from him. I don't think they ever found his 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 case, his, his suitcase, or anything. You know, it's it's like him and some of his stories, a mystery. And, and, and we've got to be careful about, you know, being definitive because I don't know if we'll ever know. Thank you. 
Hi there. Um, so Dr. Herbert West is such a coarse character, and I wanted to know whether, did that come from like the writers or the books beforehand, or did you have any input into how, um, I guess, rough around the edges he was as far as his personality? I don't see him as rough around the edges. I think, he, I think of him as uh, uh, just just focused on what he's doing and nothing's going to get in his way. Not a guy that compromises. Uh, you, some people might call it arrogant or, or some people might say really self-confident. Uh, There's a difference there. Um, uh, he... Uh, Listen, I think why people are fascinated by him is that he gets to do what we don't. We compromise all the time. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean it that way. I'm really sorry. Could you forgive me? Or, oh, God, you're right. You're right. You're right. None of that with Herbert. And we all would love to be that kind of so sure of ourselves and so steadfast that, that that nothing, and so targeted on our goal that nothing is going to uh, take it away. Um, manipulative, yes. Brilliant, yes. But kind of like a superhero in that, you know, nothing, he does, unwavering. A kind of unwavering, uncompromising confidence. Uh, and, 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 and people go, wow, I wish I, wish I could be like that including me. So I sort of played it as if nothing stops this guy. It's not complicated, but I don't think he was rough. I think he was just said it like, you know, we all would like to say, say it like it is, but we're tactful and we're careful. He didn't care. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, Herbert, speak to Herbert. Here's our... The doctor is in. Actually, he's not Herbert. He's, he's not. Uh, American. Uh, American psycho, Patrick Bateman. Oh, my well, my ex is over there, and uh, I have business cards. Yeah, he gave me one. <laughs> okay. He has business well cards. Okay. Do you like Huey Lewis in the news? <laughs> yes, Huey Lewis in the news. Um, so, yeah, my question is, so I recall that there was a possibility at, once, at one point of the fourth reanimator movie revolving around Herbert West going to the White House to revive the president who would have been played by Bruce Greenwood. And I have this, you know, I just like the image of Herbert West in today's political climate trying to work his way through that whole house of cards. So my question would be, how would you see Herbert functioning in that environment? Would he play all the chaos to his own best interests or would it be too much for even a powerhouse such as him. It would not be too much for him. He would figure out a way. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, that was a really uh, interesting, powerful uh, idea of Stewart's House of Reanimator, i.e. White House. And the premise was that, and this was in the time of, it seems so quaint now, given all the bullshit we have to deal with, uh, had to deal with that uh, it, it was uh, Bush and Cheney and the story was that the vice president uh, uh, had, a, had a horrible heart attack but was being kept on life support 
but he couldn't die because he was really the power and not the president. You see what I mean? Like, like, so it's a documentary. <laughs> it's a documentary. <laughs> so it's kind of like Cheney is really the power and Bush is just sort of the, uh, you know. So Stewart being the political animal that he was, he really wanted to like uh, push that. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do? You know, the powers that be, CIA, uh, you know, real power brokers. What are we going to do? We're running out of ideas. He can't be dead. He just can't be dead. Well, you know. <laughs> we know a guy. I have a guy. I know a guy. <laughs> if we can just find him, right? So they wind up, uh, they, they wind up finding uh, Dan Kane. And Dan Kane somehow uh, tracks me down, or has them track me down, and brings me in to revive the, pre the, the vice president. That was sort of the, the idea, right? But <laughs> it's insane. And so <laughs> it's insane, but hilarious. And so Herbert pulls the juice out and is able to kind of revive him, but, you know, not quite right. He's a little berserko. Uh, like, he holds a press conference and he seems to be doing well and then, you know, and it just goes nuts. And uh, something about down in the basement of the White House, Stewart had this idea of, like, you know, there's Kennedy and there's Lincoln and, you know, they've been <laughs> kept down there and let's revive them. And just Stuart going insane. <laughs> but he was real steadfast, Stuart, in the idea that it had to be Bush and Cheney. It had to be those guys because I really want to send them, you know, I really want to make a statement. And I kept going, well, Stuart, why can't it just be a president and a vice president? And he was like, no. And uh, a lot of uh, producer uh, or money people were like going, well, you're going to split the audience if you are too specific. So, but he was, Stuart, once he had an idea, it was like a pit bull on a leg. He's just not going to let go. So it kind of like never got made. Oh, that's a shame. That would have been great. Okay, this is the last question, because unfortunately we're almost out of time. What was it like making that old movie, old horror movie, Frightmare? What was it like making that? <laughs> Are you throwing your voice? Does it sound like this guy was asking his question? Yeah, really? Frightmare. That was my first horror movie. My God, Frightmare. The idea of Frightmare was based on uh, an old Hollywood story about John, when John Barrymore died, oh, yeah. that his friends went and stole his body and brought it back to one of their houses and propped him up in the chair and they had a party with their old pal, yeah, right? Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> kind of like Weekend at Bernie's, but, but, but that, 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 great story. You know, they, they did that, so, you know, this one was that the original title, by the way, of uh, Frightmare was The Horror Star. And so in, that, in this iteration of Frightmare, it's a bunch of college students who are horror fans, and their idol horror actor, uh, played by Ferdy Main, 
uh, which is probably something akin to, I don't know, Vincent Price sort of guy who, who dies and his body is in a mausoleum and they decide to go and and break into the mausoleum and steal his body and have a banquet with him at the head of the... Um, it's kind of a clever, weird idea. It wasn't very well executed because then there was this sort of metaphysical like seance thing and brought him back to life. It was really... Uh, got silly. But it was my first experience in a, in a horror movie. Um, it was kind of a low-rent sort of production company and uh, a little shifty. and it, So it wasn't like, hey, this is a lot of fun. It the was, real story was incredible. It, it, it yeah. may be apocryphal. It's in Hollywood Babylon. But it's amazing because they didn't tell, I forget who it was, like John Gilbert or whoever came back. And so he didn't know, he just knew that his friend had died and he comes into the house and, he, yeah, yeah. and he's sitting there and it's just, it almost scared him to death. Yeah, well, it pranked, they pranked they him. Pranked like, Let's not tell him, yeah, right? Yeah, and he yeah. came in and went, <laughs> you know. Hilarious yeah. jokes you play yeah. on your friends. Yeah. But it's With the corpses of other friends. So the, uh, that was Frightmare. And uh, what's really weird about Frightmare is that at some point down the line, Troma purchased it. And then when they put it out on TV, they put my name above the title. It's like I'm just a supporting role in the movie. It's like all of a Jeffrey Cobbs in Frightmare. And it's like, whoa, come on, man. You know. You have success. It's the ultimate test of success. I guess. Kevin Costner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kevin Costner. Yeah, in... uh, what was the movie where he was cut out of? Was yeah, the, the Big Chill. The Big Chill. Yeah, exactly. the body. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's surreal. It's surreal when you see things like that. Well, like, as is your tradition here at GalaxyCon and Nightmare Weekend, there's a giant selfie that they take. So they've asked me to tell you if you can please come before you dash out to the front of the stage to take a selfie with uh, Jeff and everyone. Thank you, Jeff, for a remarkable conversation as always. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you all for being and here. And not at dinner. And, and here for GalaxyCon. They do a great job. And don't even try to go out the back door because they're not going to let you out until the photo is taken. You're trapped. Welcome back to the Tedium. That was our interview with Jeffrey Combs. Now it's just us, John. But we're reanimated after all that. Yeah. We are. We are. It's great. I really, really, I really enjoyed talking to him. And I have to admit, I, I did feel like, well, we did a, such a great interview with him on the show a couple of years ago. Yeah. You know, what are we going to talk about? And it turns out that there was a ton of stuff to talk about. And uh, he was great. Um, even if we don't really talk about Star Trek all that much. But again, that gets back to how, you know, the the actors really seem to, I mean, forgive the expression, come to life uh, when we give them an opportunity to talk about things that they don't get asked a hundred thousand times. And we're not asking them about their favorite color. Um, And uh, and I think that's what really sets these these interviews apart. So what was it like working with Barbara Crampton? It was great. It was great. I think even after the strike is over, we are going to tell them that they cannot talk about Star Trek ever again. No, I, I think like so Fight too. Club. 
I think, I think, you know, this is the new paradigm. I think it's like, do we really need to focus so much on Star Trek the whole time when, you know, it's certainly, you know, some of the actors we're talking to are so interesting that yeah. we want to just really talk to them. Uh, Such you know, an about, interesting actor needs an interesting interview. Yeah, exactly. We'll be yeah, the inglorious nothing spurts. <laughs> nothing. Yeah, we're the nothing. <laughs> Nowhere, men. Um, but oh, this was look. This is this was this is great, and we're getting very close to that time of the season it's where coming. it's time to uh, the holidays. The holiday specials. Hunker down. Yep. I'm really I'm really worried. I, 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 I those take so much out of us. Yeah, but they give so much to the listeners. So so much joy. It's, true. it's our gift to you. So if you want to replay that gift, maybe somebody who knows something about YouTube and TikTok and stuff will email us and help us out with the, you know, as we grow the with podcast. Our, with our transition to video. You Again, kids with yeah. the YouTube and the TikTok and the MySpace. <laughs> the Friendster. Yes, <laughs> that's right. We're live on Friendster. <laughs> <laughs> Be my friend. Cut <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Anyway, well, guys, as always, it's a pleasure. Um, and of course, we'll be heading out to Columbus, Ohio for GalaxyCon December 2nd and 3rd. And it'll be the big three. We'll all be there. Yes. I believe it's the first, second, and third. December yeah. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. <laughs> we'll be in Columbus, Ohio at another great GalaxyCon. And have they got a Fantastic lineup. We hope you'll join us there Indeed. Um, and hear some of these terrific interviews that we'll be doing live. And we got some special surprises planned. So, uh, really special surprises special and some surprises. not so special surprises. Not just surprises, special surprises. Wow. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be pretty neat. And we'll looking more stories for... about cookies. Nice. Well, I hope so. So far, they're two for two on the cookies. <laughs> I hope, I hope the cookie, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I always have the cookie monster on stage. This, you know, Steve Whitmere is saying Kermit, but I'd like C to see... C uh, for cookie. That's good enough for me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, anyway, uh, thanks as always for joining us. A big thanks to Mark Rivera, our sound engineer, uh, Peter Holmstrom for pulling all the great clips uh, that you've uh, you've enjoyed throughout the broadcast. And uh, and you for joining us here on the Trexpress, as you do every week, and on our companion podcast, Deck 78 which is available to our Trexpress Plus subscribers through Spotify and Apple Podcast by going to trexpressplus.com or the 430 movie. So uh, until next week, on behalf of Ashley Miller, Darren Dockerman, and myself, Mark A. Altman, keep on trekking, ingloriously, of course. <laughs>